There was quite a buzz in the auditorium before the first performance of Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9 in 1945. Shostakovich had composed his symphony during the last months of what we call the Second World War and the Russians call the Great Patriotic War. There had been a terrible, devastating cost of lives in Russia. The invading Nazi army had reached the outskirts of Moscow, but as with Napoleon, the invader had finally been defeated. So when there were reports in the Soviet papers, particularly the Soviet news agency TASS, that a new symphony was appearing by the country's prominent symphonist, this was regarded as a significant event. And Shostakovich was quoted, one has to use that word itself in inverted commas when dealing with the Soviet press, as indeed with some of ours. But what Shostakovich was reported as saying was that this symphony would be devoted to the celebration of our great victory. Shostakovich himself is supposed to have gone on and said, I'm thinking of my next symphony, the ninth. I would like to employ not only a very large orchestra, but a choir and soloists, if I can find a suitable text. Well, in my case, I don't want to be accused of drawing presumptuous analogies. Well, of course, that's a bit of a joke for a start, because as soon as you say that, everybody immediately starts thinking of another ninth symphony with large orchestra, chorus, and soloists. Beethoven's, of course. But it was too late now to avoid drawing presumptuous analogies because Soviet Russia prepared itself for a masterpiece, a communist ode to joy, no doubt, to put beside Beethoven's Ninth, with, of course, a suitable acknowledgement of the godlike role played in the great victory by the leader and teacher himself, Josef Stalin. So imagine you're all sitting in the great hall of the Leningrad Conservatory and preparing for the first performance of this symphony. There must be great expectations, I'm sure, around the auditorium. All right, now, as you can probably see looking at the layout today, there's no choir, no soloists. Now, the orchestra itself is actually quite small by comparison to the orchestras that Shostakovich had used in the two previous symphonies, the Leningrad and the Eighth Symphony. But even then, I don't imagine anyone was expecting anything quite like this. In a grey afternoon in Manchester, that's rather heartwarming and invigorating, isn't it? But imagine you're surrounded by people who are scared almost for their lives of what the official powers are going to make of a new artistic statement, and that appears instead of the promised Soviet ode to joy. Well, one composer, a man called Marian Koval, left a record of his impression. The listeners parted feeling very, very uncomfortable, as if embarrassed by this musical mischief Shostakovich had committed and displayed, committed, alas, not by a youth, but by a 45-year-old man. And at a time like that, the audience, Koval wrote, was presented with old man Haydn and a regular American sergeant, unsuccessfully made up to look like Charlie Chaplin, with every possible grimace and whimsical gesture, galloped through the symphony's first movement. <laughs> To compound the felony, uh, immediately after that, there's an unbelievably obsolete device, an exposition repeat. The whole first section is heard all over again, just as in a symphony by Haydn or Mozart, but certainly not in the kind of thing one would expect of a progressive symphony 
in Soviet Russia. The whole horror had to be experienced all over again. You can imagine people shuffling uncomfortably in their seats and wondering whether Shostakovich had taken leave of his senses. Well, there was no immediate ferocious condemnation of this, but it was clearly noted deep within the Kremlin. And when, in 1948, Shostakovich was subjected to the experience of being denounced as an enemy of the people and a bourgeois formalist at the first Congress of the Union of Soviet Composers, these words of Marianne Colville's were reprinted. Obviously, Stalin had remembered them and had remembered this phrase about musical mischief because it figured very prominently in the remarks made about Shostakovich at the time. Shostakovich was forced into one of those humiliating public repentances, only one degree short of a show trial, which may seem difficult to understand for us living in our relatively free world. But in those sort of circumstances, behavior like that could cost you your life if you didn't put it properly, if you didn't consider the effect that your words were having. If we put this symphony into a kind of musical context, its audacity becomes even more breathtaking. Before the Ninth Symphony, Shostakovich had written two huge symphonies. The first was Symphony No. 7 in C major, the Leningrad, which was actually begun while Shostakovich was still living in Leningrad, while the city was cut off by the Nazis. The story of the Leningrad siege is one of the most extraordinary ones, I think, in all human history. Um, the whole city was entirely surrounded. For the first winter, I think, the temperatures dropped to minus 44 and stayed at that level for quite some time. A million people died of malnutrition and or cold, and people were surviving on soup made from the bindings of books and from boots. It's quite extraordinary. Under these circumstances, still, an orchestra was put together, and Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad, was played. It was played, moreover, at the Germans through huge speakers on the outskirts of the city. And clearly, this element of defiance was something that was prized by all people who took part in it. You can sense that defiant, heroic note right at the beginning of the symphony. This is how it starts. just the right note of heroic defiance that the people needed and the officials needed to be seen to be endorsed. In fact, Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony became a great propaganda object in the Second World War. It was microfilmed and flown under armed convoy to America, where Toscanini conducted the first performance, and Shostakovich was depicted on the cover of the American Time magazine as a firefighter on the roof of the Leningrad Conservatory. The whole thing became an emblem of the defiance of the human spirit in the face of evil and oppression. Now, the Eighth Symphony, which Shostakovich wrote in 1943, that's one of the blackest periods of the war, is very different in tone. It's also conceived on a very large scale, also uses a very big orchestra. And this is the period, of course, in Russian history when Hitler has got very close to Moscow and the horrors of Stalingrad are just about to begin. The symphony seems to be bent on reflecting all this. It's full of violence and devastation, and above all, a sense of terrible loss that you can sense right from the beginning of the symphony.
Well, Shostakovich's Eighth Symphony may be regarded as one of his most important statements today, but at the time of its first performance, it didn't go down at all well. This was not what a Soviet composer was expected to be doing at times like this, when his country was in national peril. Surely what people needed was their spirits raising, not a reflection of what they most dreaded and suffered. Let's don't forget, this is the kind of climate in which a composer like Shostakovich could be summoned before a board of authorities and asked bizarre musical questions like why he'd written so many pieces in the minor key. After all, if you think about it, we would have been told the minor key is tragic, the minor key is sad, the major key is happy. Why are you writing unhappy pieces in our glorious Soviet utopia? Surely there's no place for your unhappiness anymore. Our art, as the writer Maxim Gorky put it in a spectacular piece of artistic toadying in the 1930s, its purpose was to affirm the ultimate rightness of Soviet reality. And here is Shostakovich in the Eighth Symphony showing that there really is an awful lot wrong with the world, as it seems, realising and reflecting back his country's sufferings. But there was a feeling that with this Ninth Symphony of 1945, at the end of the war, this was Shostakovich's big chance to redeem himself, to show himself on the winning side, in accordance with the feelings of the winning side. And what had he done? Well, even when this symphony, the Ninth, strikes a triumphant attitude, as it does towards the end of the first movement, you can tell that Shostakovich is skating on paper-thin ice. I love that ending. <laughs> is it joyous or is it a kind of two-fingered salute? It sounds more like the latter to me, certainly. You're almost like the Prokofiev classical symphony, but with what people today call attitude. In other words, rude words as a subtext. What had happened? Well, Shostakovich was a notoriously unpredictable character. Perhaps something had just buckled under pressure. At times, Shostakovich would buckle under pressure and do, it seems, exactly what the authorities wanted of him. But at other times, he could be almost staggeringly brave. This sort of thing could cost you your life. Or, or maybe he was just being manically reckless. Well, a critic who knew Shostakovich, a man called Daniel Zhitomirsky, wrote this about the Ninth Symphony. Shostakovich had developed a kind of fatalistic attitude to what was demanded of him, which often had an oppressing effect on him. But actually, in his work in the Ninth Symphony, he could no longer subjugate himself to this oppression. Zhitomirsky tells us that some musicians heard Shostakovich play through his first attempt at the Ninth Symphony, that there was a triumphal, heroic, major key march at the beginning, which surged with energy. But it seems that shortly after this, something happened. The devil got hold of Shostakovich, perhaps in a wondrous form like that of the cat Behemoth, the inspired demonic prankster in Mikhail Bulgakov's novel, The Master and Margarita. He's a great character. If you don't know that novel, I really recommend you do. You can just imagine him being on Shostakovich's side. And when that happened, the real ninth, it seems, was born. Thank you. 
wouldn't mind getting a bit of audience feedback at this stage, if you don't mind, because I'm interested to know what, broadly speaking, your reactions to this music are by this stage. So let's have a kind of poll, shall we? How many of you listening to that big crescendo from near the end of the finale of the Ninth Symphony would agree with Marianne Koval that what we're listening to is a piece of musical mischief? Dostakovich as a prankster with a touch of Charlie Chaplin. If you think that's appropriate to the music, would you put your hands up? One or two of you. How many of you think there's something rather darker going on in that? Oh yes, quite a few of you think that as well. I must say, I find that crescendo absolutely terrifying, extraordinary. And the moment where the theme thunders back in E-flat major at the end couldn't be much less triumphal than that. I wonder if Shostakovich, in choosing the home key of E-flat major, was providing a kind of ironic commentary. The E-flat is, after all, the key of Beethoven's Eroica symphony, the heroic symphony. And here's a symphony of what, what it has to offer. Well, heroic isn't ultimately, I think, the right word that comes to mind. When you read some of the things about Shostakovich these days, people trying to pin particular interpretations on him, is this piece positive or negative? Is it pro-communist or anti? Does this theme represent Stalin or Hitler or whatever? It'd be easy to forget sometimes that what we're actually talking about here is a composer, someone who puts notes together. Several composer friends have said to me, hearing my programs. One thing you tend to forget is that what a composer is really thinking of is how the hell he's going to fill the next page with notes. Um, well, I think it's quite interesting if we have a look at some of the things that Shostakovich does, just from a musical technical point of view of the symphony, and I think you'll see the very high quality of the musical imagination that's going on. Then we'll come back to this question of musical meanings later on. Do you remember that crude little two-note figure that introduced the second theme in the first movement of the symphony. It's just about as simple a musical formula as there is, isn't it? Dominant tonic, bom bom. It's one of the basic classical formulae in music. The number of classical symphonies or classical pieces that end with a simple figure like that is legion. But what Shostakovich does with it when we get to the recapitulation in this movement is delightful and wonderfully ingenious. It's a real comedic touch of invention because the music starts to get more and more tonally unsettled. Here's a piece that's supposed to be an E-flat. There are definitely moments in this movement, and certainly moments in the later movements, where the sense of a tonal foundation starts to get very wobbly and uncertain indeed. As the tension builds and the harmonies get more and more dissonant and ambiguous, the trombone starts parping out those same two notes again, bum bum, over and over again, as though the trombone is sort of like one voice in the middle of the chaos crying out, order, 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 blithely almost unaware of what's going on around him. There's a huge climax reached, and then the trombone has his bum bum once more, and amazingly, we've arrived in a home key, nice and stability. It's a wonderfully comic moment. It reminds me of some sort of Soviet official insisting over and over again loudly that tractor production has reached its target level in spite of the evidence of chaos to the contrary. But he goes on for insisting for so long that eventually it seems to be true.
he got there in the end, didn't he? So you go on insisting on something for long enough and people start to believe it's true. The orchestra joins in and we finally arrive at this key that the trombone is insisting we're actually in. There are some other lovely ingenious touches in later movements. Actually, again, worth noting how Shostakovich can do an enormous amount musically with a very simple little musical device. The slow movement begins with a lovely melancholic tune on clarinet with a very simple bass pizzicato accompaniment. It's one of those long, slightly asymmetrical, unfolding melodic lines that Shostakovich is so good at. I'm just checking the eyebrows of our resident Shostakovich expert, David Fanning, sitting over there and noticed that he raised his considerably during that solo, because what we played was not quite what Shostakovich wrote. What we heard there was in a very simple 3-4, one, two, three, one, two, three, a nice lilting 3-4. Actually, Shostakovich writes in little hesitations. Now, where another composer might have added pauses or commas, just to indicate a breath, Shostakovich adds whole crotchet rests, making the tune slightly lopsided so that you have an extra beat in some of the bars. That, in a strange way, makes it even more touching. It's a lovely effect, like somebody just pausing for breath for a moment in mid-phrase, as though what they're saying is particularly important, even though it's expressed in such a modest way. But Shostakovich makes marvellous use of that rest idea, that little pause, throughout the rest of the movement. If you take the second theme, for instance, you'll notice that, again, there are significant crotchet rests between each pair of notes, which give it a kind of strange dragging motion, like this. You see that idea of the little crotchet pause, the breath, has actually become an integral part in a different way of the second theme of the movement. And when that theme builds to the climax of the movement and a note of anguish begins to enter the music again, that dragging effect intensifies as Shostakovich puts the rest in different parts of the orchestra. It's, you actually have forlorn cries from the woodwind at the climax to give it even more effect. Reminds me of one of those tragic prisoner's work songs that you hear in music of the 19th century, or indeed in Shostakovich's own 20th century opera, Lady Macbeth of Mutsensk. That dragging effect is really very poignant, but it also adds immensely to the tension as this music builds to its climax. There are so many fine, subtle touches in this movement that are so simple that you might hardly notice them. After that final climax, the first theme returns, and again, there's another build-up. 
this time followed by wonderful falling gracious lines, on, first of all on high violins and cellos. It has a sort of grace combined with modern acerbity, a sort of Tchaikovsky ballet music transformed. But again, one of the things that makes it sound so flowing and such a relief after the music we've heard so far is that now there aren't any rests, now there aren't any breaks in the musical continuity. And they've been such an important part of the music so far that to have music at last that doesn't have them brings a kind of lightening of the load, certainly a beautifully timed effect. And then at the end of the movement comes another delicious touch, which is just pure Shostakovich. You could say, and it sounds like a kind of damnation with faint praise, but actually Shostakovich was the 20th century's greatest master of the piccolo. In fact, he probably understood the piccolo better than any other composer who ever lived. That simple child's piping eloquence that he sometimes brings to it. There's a gorgeous piccolo solo in the first movement of the Leningrad Symphony, clearly standing for a kind of innocence before the great despoilation of war happens. At the end of it, the piccolo ends with a last reminiscence of the clarinet's phrase, now gently regularized into a flowing 3-4, as the strings underneath try to work out whether to end this movement in the major or the minor. Lovely breath control there from our piccolo player. It's extremely difficult and agony to keep in tune as well. Well, that looks forward to one of Shostakovich's most wonderful inspirations at the end of the next symphony, the 10th, where at the end of the first movement, two piccolos play together in flowing lines intertwining with each other. An incredibly touching sound and agony for piccolo players because the second piccolo is coming in, I think, for the first time in the whole movement on a cold instrument for something that really needs to be in tune. It's a miracle when you hear it played right that we in the audience don't always appreciate. But that movement, the second movement, is followed again by utter contrast. Well, didn't Marianne Koval say that this was a cheeky, mischievous symphony? Certainly, our passages like the beginning of the third movement do seem to bear him out. sounds like fun, exhilarating, good, clean fun. But this movement seems to lose its way rather quickly. It finishes much earlier than you'd expect, and it doesn't actually come to a stop. Something different happens, and there's a complete change in the emotional landscape, the kind of thing Shostakovich specialised in. Here's what happens at the end of the third movement and straight into the movement that follows.
stark, unison, brass, dotted, unmistakably funereal rhythms, and the key of B-flat minor, a key Shostakovich used for some of his darkest statements, his 13th symphony, his 13th string quartet, or the Passacaglia slow movements of his second piano trio and his quartet number six. That change of mood at the beginning of the fourth movement, even though it's not quite so sudden as in Mussorgsky's pictures and exhibition, reminds me of Mussorgsky's great plunge suddenly after showing the joy and the happiness and the liveliness of the Tuileries Gardens in one of his pictures, and suddenly were plunged into the brassy darkness of the catacombs. Shostakovich revered Mussorgsky, revered Mussorgsky's treatment of the theme of death, and was particularly fond of that movement to catacombs from pictures of an exhibition. I wonder if that might have been faintly at the back of his mind as he begins this music, this fourth movement, this extraordinary fourth movement. What emerges from that brassy beginning is a long, plaintive bassoon solo, a recitative. Yes, that's changed the mood a bit, hasn't it? Well, thanks there to the BBC Philharmonic's bassoonist, David Chapman, for that eloquent playing there. Shostakovich and instrumental recitative is quite an interesting subject because he uses it an awful lot in his symphonies, in his string quartets. But it's an interesting sign of how much he was prepared to trust performers that he knew and liked. In an age when composers increasingly became more and more narrowly prescriptive about the kind of expression that you want, to almost phenomenal degrees in some of the productions of the Darmstadt School of New Music after the war, Shostakovich shows a remarkable ability to trust performers. Now, he'd had the experience by this stage of working considerably with the Leningrad Philharmonic Orchestra and its incredible conductor, Yevgeny Mravinsky. And one other way of looking, for instance, at his Eighth Symphony is that it's a kind of concerto for orchestra. There's a solo for everybody in it, and you can imagine him delighting in the thought of what a particular player might have made of a particular passage. But that passage, nevertheless, has a very strange, uncomfortable quality to it. It certainly reminds me of a passage, the great corps anglais recitative towards the end of the first movement of the Eighth Symphony. We've had an almost breathtakingly violent climax in the first movement of the Eighth Symphony. And then comes this outpouring of grief on the corps anglais with shimmering strings. 
which is so vocal in expression, so almost like, almost like somebody telling you something, that you could almost imagine that you could hear words in music like this. Thanks this time to our core anglais player, Gillian Callow, who's just taken up the instrument cold at that point to produce that extraordinary performance there. An unmistakable similarity to that bassoon recitative in the middle of the Ninth Symphony, a similarity of tone as well as of character. But there are always so many levels in Shostakovich. He's such a complex character. It's one of those little ironies that Solomon Volkov, in the introduction to the work Testimony, which claims to be Shostakovich's memoirs, remarks at one point that trying to get the truth out of Shostakovich was like searching through a box with three false bottoms. Interesting that the book Testimony should present seemingly such a one-sided view of Shostakovich's achievement, while Volkov himself admits that to get to that view, Sometimes or other, he has to do a little sifting through what seem like extraordinary contradictions. I think that's part of Shostakovich's character. It's certainly part of the character of his music. And there are all sorts of other things going on at this point in the Ninth Symphony. I think we can illustrate this by comparing this fourth movement of the Ninth Symphony with certain other key works in the repertory. Let's take the bassoon's very first phrase from this recitative in the Ninth Symphony. If we could just hear that, David. Does that remind you of anything? It certainly reminds me of something. This phrase from the famous instrumental recitatives in the choral finale of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony.
So is this a kind of ironic reference? Is Shostakovich invoking Beethoven's Ninth because so many people were expecting him to produce the Soviet equivalent of Beethoven's Ninth and he so signally has failed to do so? Well, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. And to illustrate the point, I think it's time we filled up these four seats here and welcomed onto the stage the members of the Danell String Quartet. I don't know how many of you know this, but Beethoven's choral finale wasn't part of his original inspiration when he noted down in his diary, I'm going to write a symphony in D minor. Originally, he intended to write a purely orchestral finale, and he wrote down what he called his tragic finale theme, like a kind of fast waltz in D minor in his sketchbooks. Actually, this theme turned up eventually in another context. He reused it in a slightly later work as the finale theme of his string quartet in A minor, opus 132. This is how it sounds in the quartet. There you are. That might have been the theme of the finale of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Well, Beethoven changed his plan, but when he reused that theme in the finale of his Opus 132 string quartet, he did something rather interesting because he introduced it, as originally intended in the Ninth Symphony, by an instrumental recitative. And would you believe that the phrase that starts that instrumental recitative is exactly the same as the one we just picked out from the Ninth Symphony a moment ago? Well, hear the whole of the fourth movement and lead into the beginning of the fifth movement, because as with Shostakovich, the fourth movement of Beethoven's Opus 132 is very short and leads straight into the finale. But there's another similarity with Shostakovich's Ninth Symphony, because as you'll hear, Beethoven's movement starts off as though it's a jaunty major key march, as though it's ever intention of being happy, rather cheeky, rather mischievous, rather fun. And then suddenly the recitative enters and the whole tone changes. Is this something that Shostakovich had at the back of his mind when he wrote the third, fourth, and fifth movements of his own ninth symphony?
Well, several writers have wondered whether Beethoven was providing a kind of ironic commentary on the finale of his own Ninth Symphony here. After all, what we have is a similar device, an instrumental recitative, but then this instrumental recitative leads into the tragic alternative theme for the finale of the Ninth Symphony. As I said, Beethoven is said to have had doubts about the appropriateness of his own Ode to Joy on several occasions and wondered whether he got it wrong. Maybe that has something to do with why the recitative and the finale, original finale theme of the Ninth Symphony takes such a different course here. And may that be one of the reasons why Shostakovich seems to invoke that music, because the violin's two first phrases in that recitative are very, very like the bassoon's two big phrases in the recitative movement of his own Ninth Symphony. It's Shostakovich saying, I'm giving you my tragic alternative Ninth Symphony. It may look jolly to you on the first, and you are expecting something triumphant, but what I've given you is what I really feel. Well, I don't know. But it is fascinating to see that resemblance to Opus 132 and to the Ninth Symphony there, to the Beethoven Ninth Symphony. As so often with Shostakovich, context is terribly, terribly important. That movement, that recitative movement with the bassoon is quite short and it leads directly into the finale, which is again led by the bassoon. The bassoon presents the first theme. And if you heard the bassoon's theme on its own, you'd probably think this was comical. This was fun, a bit like the old man's music maybe in Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. But if you hear that bassoon solo as it comes straight out of the previous movement, I think you'll agree that the smile on that music's face does seem to take on a rather different character.
there you are, a marvellous example of that double-edgedness that you so often get in Shostakovich. Is this a case of comedy wearing a tragic mask, or tragedy wearing a comic mask, or is it something else entirely? It's so difficult to tell, but that keening, knife-edged, high woodwind writing there, that doesn't sound anything like so jolly as that little tune that the bassoon introduces at the beginning of the movement. There's a lot of the kind of atmosphere of the Moscow State Circus about this finale, and that increases as you get towards the end. You can imagine them performing a great celebratory act for the great leader and teacher himself. But there definitely are passages towards the end of this movement where, to me at least, the fixed grins begin to look positively skeletal. And the ending really intensifies that double-edgedness of which Shostakovich is such a master. He's walking a kind of tightrope, and in this case, he almost fell off for good. That circus mood builds at the end. You can imagine a kind of march on of the clowns en masse and then high-kicking Cossack dancers. It's all pretty routine kind of Russian nationalist stuff, although transformed by Shostakovich, very approved as well. But when we get to the final gesture, what do you make of this? Just how does this symphony leave you feeling? Triumphant, tragic, or what? Bunny appears on the screen with a triumphant that's all folks. It has an amazing sort of throwaway quality after such an extraordinarily inventive symphony with such an amazing range of moods and characters and colours. Well, in a moment we'll hear the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra conductor Michal Dvorzhinsky play the whole of Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9 in E-flat. But before then, it's your chance. If there's anything you'd like to say, any comments you'd like to make on what we've heard so far, or any questions you'd like to ask, please put your hands up and the lady with the microphone will come to you. Ah, gentle over here. You make um, something of uh, Shostakovich's affinity feeling for Mussorgsky, and Mussorgsky's work is very, very pictorial, it seems to me. And I think that Shostakovich's work is also pictorial, even when it's not deliberately programmatic. And I'm always surprised that the comparison that's never been drawn, at least I've not seen it, is between Shostakovich and Picasso. And if you take sort of great anti-war works like Guernica, they're full of all sorts of discordant elements, deliberately cheeky elements. I mean, the difference, in a way, between Picasso and Shostakovich is we've got one Guernica and many, many sketches for it. With, with Shostakovich, we have, depending on how you want to count, seven, eight really great symphonies, great Guernicas in themselves. Well, that is an interesting point. I don't think I've ever come across a comparison between Shostakovich and Picasso before, but when you mention Guernica, there's another work which, to use that the telling phrase of Nietzsche's, bears the imprint of its time like an open wound, which, um, you know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think one thing, you're, you're absolutely right about images in Shostakovich's music, and this must have a great deal to do with his experience of writing for the films. Because you know how important film was in, in Stalinist Russia. Stalin took a great deal of proprietary interest in, in film, and Shostakovich was one of his key figures, one of his prime exhibits as a film composer. Indeed, Shostakovich was apparently continuing to be privately and secretly given film work by Stalin, even when he was supposedly in disgrace at the end of the 1940s and branded an enemy of the people. There's quite a story connected with that. 
But he even started in his early years, when things were very bad in the years after the revolution in Russia, uh, Shostakovich partly supported his family's income by playing as a pianist for silent films in the cinema. Now, what a training that must have been. You have to parallel the musical gestures you're creating second by second to the film you're seeing. Often he wouldn't have had much time. He wouldn't always have been able to see the film all the way through before he was able to play with it. So he had to respond very quickly. And I think that business of creating cinematic images that go with his music is very strong. So if the kind of music suggests to you the kind of images that go with war films or with propaganda films or with films of Russia or anything like that, or anything you care to mention, um, that's probably quite intentional. Obviously, this is music. Most of Shostakovich's greatest music doesn't have words. It doesn't have explicit programs. And obviously, he's leaving things for you to discover for yourself. And there are no, I genuinely believe, there are no right answers when you listen to Shostakovich's music, and whatever certain people will tell you. I'm very fond of a saying by the East German communist philosopher Ernst Bloch, when we listen to music, what we're really hearing is ourselves. And I think that's an important thing to remember, that we all have a different response to this music. I've given you my overview of it, which is to a certain extent informed. You can discuss that with David Fanning afterwards and see what he thinks of that. But in the end, it is up to you. And that is the kind of the glory of music. And one of the reasons why I think it was so important for people in Soviet Russia, that it spoke a kind of language that they would immediately associate with the new exciting visual image of film. It was something that would speak to them very directly. And this music does speak, I think, very directly, partly because of that extreme association with images. But at the same time, it's also left to you to respond to it creatively in a way that gives you more freedom than even a work like Guernica does. So if other people hear different parts of this symphony rather differently from me, I won't be entirely surprised. That's your prerogative. It's up to you to decide for yourself when you hear the complete symphony. But anyway, it's a very interesting point, and I'll think about that one. Has anybody else anything they'd like to ask or say? Somebody over here, yes. What did your piccolo player think? You've talked about Mussorgsky's and um, Shostakovich's use of the piccolo, but I think the most terrifying use of the piccolo ever is in Verdi's Requiem. Oh, yes, it's a pretty remarkable example of the use of the piccolo, I think, in Verdi's Requiem. I know the passage you mean in the Dies Irae. It's quite extraordinary. Um, Shostakovich would have known that well. He would have also have known, I think, some of those passages in Mahler, where Mahler used the piccolo very tenderly and effectively. But I do think that nobody uses the piccolo quite as extensively, and particularly as a melody instrument, than Shostakovich. That's a remarkable thing. I, he, I, there are very few composers who relied on the piccolo lyrically at key moments in pieces the way that Shostakovich does. Um, all that's changed a little bit in recent times. More composers have been clean to exploit it, but he really did seem to have a particular fascination to it. I wonder if something to do with the fact that it had to have that kind of innocent quality. If you play it like a pipe, like a child's pipe or a recorder or something, it has that kind of purity and simplicity that you'd associate maybe with a child singing. Certainly it's a very potent musical symbol that he uses, but thank you for the comparison with the Verdi. I'm sure that must have affected him at some stage. It is a telling, telling moment, yes. Well, it's time now to put all this to the test as we face the ultimate test by hearing the complete performance of Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9 in E-flat. Here to play it for us today are the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra, leader Peter Campbell-Kelly, and today's conductor. Would you welcome again today's conductor, Michal Dworzhinsky.